I want to talk to you today about being smart. If I were to ask you to pick one name of who the smartest person alive now in the United States is, who might you say? It's not me. The name Marilyn Voss Savant. She is claimed to have the highest IQ. She is most famous for writing a weekly column in Parade magazine. But there's another smart guy that uh, is from history that maybe we're more familiar with. His name was Albert Einstein. Now, Einstein is a bit more famous, so let's talk about him. A lot of what Einstein managed to accomplish, he accomplished in a single year working in his spare time in 1905 at the tender age of 26 he published three groundbreaking papers that provided the blueprint for most of modern science. The first paper was on the motion of particles suspended in a liquid. The second was on the photoelectric effect, what happens when light falls on metal. But the third was his more famous one, his theory on special relativity, which led to the shocking and counterintuitive conclusion that time is not constant and neither is distance or mass. Now, it's still hard to believe that Einstein's work in a single year led to the discovery of, among other things, X-ray crystallography, which was used to determine the structure of DNA, which became the foundation of all of the genetic engineering and so forth that we employ this day. It was the foundation of vacuum tubes, which led to the development of transistors, which led to the development of integrated circuits and all of the marvelous mechanics of our information age. 1905, 26 years old. That was quite a year. Einstein's work at that time also laid the groundwork for the atomic bomb. And when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Einstein's immediate response was in German, Weh ist mir, woe is me. Einstein was one of the smartest people in history, and yet he ended his career feeling that his discoveries had slipped beyond his control. The pro-bomb position that he took during the Second World War turned into pacifism by the end of his life. The mushroom cloud that validated so many brilliant theories brought no joy to the genius but instead only woe. They is And that is precisely the response we often have when our wisdom turns out not to be so wise at all. When the trouble we're in is of our own making. When the plans we've devised implode under the weight of their own foolishness. When we think we really know what we're doing, but in reality, we don't even know that we don't have a clue. 
sophomoric, we might say. Do you know what the word sophomore really means? Yeah, it's the year between freshman year and junior and senior years. But it's a word that's made up of two Greek roots. The first, sapho, comes from sophos, which means wisdom. The second part, more, comes from the same root as moron. And the word sophomore is the wise fool. The one who just know, who knows just enough to know that they don't know everything. Who should be smarter, do you suppose, a five-year-old or his teacher? Let me tell you a story about a certain teacher in Texas who is helping one of her kindergartners put on his cowboy boots. He asked for help, and she could see why. Even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boots didn't, go, didn't want to go on. And by the time they got the second boot on, she had worked up quite a sweat. She almost cried when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. She looked, and sure enough, they were. Well, it wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them on, but she managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on to the right feet this time. Teacher, the boy said, these aren't my boots. She bit her tongue rather than get right in his face and scream, why didn't you tell me that before, like she really wanted to do. And once again, she struggled to help him pull the ill-fitting boots off his little feet. And no sooner than she had gotten them off, when he said, they're my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them. Now she didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but she mustered up what grace and courage she had left to wrestle the boots back onto the little feet again. And then finally, helping him into his coat, she asked him, now where are your mittens? He said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. You'll be happy to know she's up for parole next year. It's not unusual for us to think we know what we're doing. But in reality, sometimes we don't have a clue. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And this is especially true when we mistake knowledge for wisdom. Knowledge is one thing. It's the information that we accumulate throughout our lives and is a critical element of our humanity. Knowledge is what Siri or Alexa can provide. Wisdom is knowing how to use knowledge. What will we do with the knowledge that we are discovering day by day, year by year? Toward what end will we use this very powerful and precious resource. In the Old Testament text read so well today, a young Solomon 
and scholars suggest he might have been as young as 15 years old, assumes the throne of his father David. At this momentous turning point, he has to decide what his focus as the new king of Israel will be. He knows very well that royal power can be used for both good and evil, something his father David demonstrated throughout the roller coaster ride of his four decade old reign. And so Solomon hopes his administration can do better. Now, since there is not yet, yet a temple in Jerusalem, Solomon goes to a high place called Gibeon to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And we're told that uh, Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So it is clear that Solomon is no slouch in the sacrifice department. While he is in Gibeon, God appears to him in a dream. And God says, ask what I should give you. Tough question to ask a 15-year-old sophomore makes you wonder what you and I might respond if God were to put an offer like that to us. Solomon could ask for a long life or riches or victory over his enemies. He could express a desire for good looks, for hair, for popular uh, personal popularity or political power or like many 15-year-olds, romantic success. But Solomon asks for none of these. Instead, he says to God, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. More than anything else, Solomon the sophomore wants more wisdom to enable him to discern what is right and wrong. It pleases the Lord that Solomon asks this. In fact, God is so delighted he gives the new king a wise and discerning mind. And on top of this, gives him several additional benefits that he hadn't even requested, riches and honor and long life. It turns out that an understanding mind is at the very top of God's desires for us. So how can we exercise this kind of wisdom? We begin by grasping that true understanding involves the heart and the spirit as well as the head. There's nothing wrong with accumulating knowledge. Ask Siri. But don't ask Siri who you should marry. Don't ask Siri what your career path should be. Unfortunately, knowledge acquired is not always wisdom dispensed. As my father, who earned his GED when he was 49 years old, once remarked that he had met a lot of well-educated fools. Wisdom is no mere intellectual exercise which is another thing Einstein discovered when his greatest insights started a chain reaction that resulted in his cry, woe is me. Unless intellectual clarity includes a heartfelt understanding of people 
and a Christian concern for their welfare, it can lead to woe upon woe upon woe. Solomon demonstrates very quickly that his wisdom is both heartfelt and heart-shaped. Soon after his dream at Gibeon, two prostitutes come and stand before him. You may know the story. They live in the same house and both have infant sons. But in the middle of the night, one of them rolls over and accidentally crushes her son to death. They argue about which one of them is the true mother of the remaining child, with one saying, no, the living son is mine and the dead son is yours, with the other saying exactly the same thing back at her. And so they were presented to Solomon. And Solomon's solution was to ask for a sword. He says, divide the living boy in two. Give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son is alive says to the king, please, my lord, give her the living boy. Certainly do not kill him. Solomon had the wisdom to know that only a true mother would be willing to part with her son in order to spare his life. So what is wisdom? Where can wisdom be found? Wisdom is at the intersection of thought, feeling, and spirit. It involves walking in God's ways and keeping God's commands. When we walk with God, we replace the human tendency to do what is most base and most selfish with the spirit-led tendency to do what is most helpful and selfless. Wisdom always wears a cloak of charity. As Jesus taught, the greatest wisdom is to love God and your neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength, he said. And he said also, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Wisdom may flow from knowledge, but it is not just knowledge. What Jesus is saying is that we should keep love of God and love of neighbor in front of us as we move forward into the future together. If our discoveries don't help us to act in a truly loving way, then we need to find another path to travel. Great minds have always sensed this, whether they were kings of Israel or winners of Nobel Prizes. In fact, Albert Einstein himself said, it has become appallingly obvious that our technology has exceeded our humanity. Wisdom requires not only a good mind, but a loving heart and a willingness to walk in God's ways. Any other path leads to a world of woe.